Welcome to part two of our previous Driven by Prevention podcast episode brought to you by the Merck Animal Health Swine Team. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out part one by listening to the previous episode. And as a reminder, Merck Animal Health is proud to be your invested partner in the industry and is focused on solving your swine disease and reproductive challenges for better business and improved animal welfare productivity, opportunity, partnership, wellness, all driven by prevention. Tavis or Phil, can you uh, review the USDA surveillance program? What are the biggest outcomes we've seen from that? Sure. Um, I think the USDA swine influenza surveillance program has two, two broad goals. Uh, the first is uh, just characterizing the genetic diversity of influenza out there um, in the U.S. And the second is to build a repository of viruses that can be used for additional study and also for biologic companies to, to develop vaccines. Uh, the repository is, is, I'd say, it's quite successful now. So it's, uh, it's hosted in Ames, Iowa at the National uh, Veterinary Services Laboratory. Uh, it's got on the order of about six to 7,000 unique uh, influenza isolates, and they can be requested uh, by, by folks to, to develop vaccines or uh, diagnostics. Um, and that's a, a great resource. Um, and then the, the second component there is the assessing genetic diversity. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times, everything changed in the late 1990s. Um, and what we want to be able to do is say that this is what we have right now uh, and this is how it's changed over the last year. Ideally what we can do is assess how the diversity of the influenza is changing and then try and work out not necessarily the direction in which it is evolving uh, so that when we think about developing a vaccine we could develop one for Iowa or we could develop one for North Carolina, Minnesota or we may be able to merge some of those locations together um, based on particular production flows. Uh, and that's what the, the, the National Surveillance Program gives us the ability to do. We can look at what diversity is circulating across the country and what diversity is circulating within particular regions, how many different types we have, uh, and whether or not those types are representative of 80% of the viruses we find, 20%, uh, 5%, uh, or if they're just a tiny little trickle of a virus, so maybe 0.5% or 1% of the viruses we detect in diagnostic submissions. If it's just 0.5% of the 100-odd viruses we get a month, we may not need to develop a brand new vaccine for that one virus. Uh, but if there's a new detection that has suddenly gone from one virus up to 50 over the course of one month, then that new, that's probably a new introduction and we're probably going to have to think about revising our control strategies. Uh, so that, I think, is one of the best outcomes, the sort of having a repository, a huge library of viruses that we can source and use for vaccine development. Uh, and then on top of that, having an interactive um, exploration of where and when these viruses are circulating and try and work out how we can better design and better intervene to control infection. So the program was started in 2009 after the H1N1 pandemic in humans in order to help monitor what's going on in pigs more thoroughly because really 
that virus, as we mentioned earlier, was made up of different pig segments that came together to create that virus. So we've talked a lot about human spillover viruses, so it's obvious that pigs and people can share their viruses back and forth. But the USDA program, and with what Tavis described, really emphasizes the importance of, sur of the surveillance and monitoring at the genetic level that needs to occur with flu today if you're going to understand what's going on in your production system. So to go back to Christine's comment when she's talking about her diagnostics, um, understanding if flu is present and the subtype is one aspect, probably not as important as the sequence and understanding genetically what's going on because those high-level uh, diagnostics of detecting the virus and just saying whether it's an H1 or H3 really isn't complete enough in order to do adequate surveillance to know what's circulating in your system because that doesn't help us from that control standpoint if we're going to create a vaccine. We need to know genetically what's going on, if it's the same or different virus, and then the USDA program helps us know if there's a new virus that maybe is on the rise that might be a concern to other production systems like Christine's. If they don't have that there, they might be, uh, have a heightened awareness that this is, could be the next one coming along to infect their system. Are there key sites and how are they discovered? Right, yeah, um, well, it, I think this goes back to that sort of fundamental idea that you've got, you're comparing two viruses and you're asking, how similar are they? How different? And if they are different, uh, how much difference is meaningful? And when we're doing these types of comparisons, we're primarily interested in one gene, the hemagglutinin, which is the, gives it the H1 or the H3 name. Uh, the reason why we focus in on that is because uh, that particular gene uh, generates a protein uh, that a lot of the antibodies, neutralizing antibodies that the immune system um, develops uh, are to that particular protein. And that's what we're also trying to stimulate with our vaccines. We're trying to put in a protein that can stimulate, neutralize, stimulate neutralizing antibodies to, that recognize uh, that virus. Uh, so what we did with the, developing these key sites is we started looking at uh, viruses and looking at where the differences uh, occurred across the individual hemagglutinin. Uh, and once we identified uh, areas that were highly variable, uh, then we were able to compare those viruses and see if they truly are uh, different. Uh, we did that in, sort of in lab studies and then also in animal studies as well. Uh, and then to back that up, we were able to use some nice uh, virology techniques called reverse genetics, where you're able to individually manipulate particular positions in the gene. Uh, so we were able to make viruses more similar or more different at particular positions and in doing so identify um, six critical amino acid positions that have a disproportionate impact on the virus and each of those positions is associated with something known as the receptor binding site uh, which so the hemagglutinin this ha protein this gene uh, is one of its major functions is to grab onto the host cell so once it gets into a pig it needs to get into a cell, and it does that using the hemagglutinin with a receptor binding site. And so the six sites that we identified are all associated with the ability of the virus to get into the cell. Uh, and that's also where our body and the pig's body d develops antibodies to those particular sites. So if you have variation at them, uh, then the antibodies no longer recognize the virus, uh, and they can't bind to it, and they can't neutralize it. Uh, so just with those six sites alone, for the H3 viruses, we were able to explain how they were recognized by antibodies. Um, 
At the moment, uh, we're attempting to do something similar with the H1 viruses, uh, but we haven't been able to pin it down to six sites quite yet. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, work in the future is, is what we're hoping to do uh, with H1, so that we have an understanding of, sure, we have a, a huge, well, we have a big gene, uh, but within that, are there particular areas that we need to think about critically in terms of the diversity and uh, can we design vaccines that better match at those locations? So I think the, the antigenic sites from the genetic perspective is still kind of a new, a new field that uh, a lot of Tavis's lab and the National Disease Center is getting, uh, is looking into much more closely. So it's, it's one more level of looking at that genetic diversity and trying to hone in on what actually is important and very influential within that genetic structure of the virus in order to still be able to uh, develop better control mechanisms, understand when we might need to develop a different vaccine or when a production system or veterinarian might want to utilize a different virus or make the decision to utilize a different virus within their vaccine itself. So I still consider it to be relatively new. Another uh, step uh, more in depth into the genetic diversity that will be helpful as we evaluate these viruses and because they're so genetically diverse, like Tavis said, they're just starting to work on the H1 viruses, which is fairly complex and is going to take some sorting through, but only makes sense in relation to how diverse and difficult that virus is as far as the control efforts. Yeah. So I think one of the things that has come out of, uh, of some of this work is that you could have a virus that is essentially identical across the entire gene, but if it has variation in a handful of critical areas, that may result in vaccine failure. Um, and so our, our, our goal is to try and understand those key areas. Uh, and ideally, if we understand those ones, uh, then we can make better intervention efforts. Uh, it's not, as with all of biology, uh, it's, it's, a, it's challenging. And there's a little, a little bit of variation there. Uh, so there's not a hard and fast rule. Um, but we have some indication, at least, uh, that there are areas within the genes that are more important than others. Are we seeing regional specific strains like something you've seen in North Carolina has never made it to Iowa and Minnesota or vice versa? There's a great map showing all the movements of pigs in one day mm -hmm. and you know you've got your hubs, your Iowa, your Minnesota, your you know central United States where there's a lot of pigs being shipped in and a lot of pigs being shipped out. And then you have your, like your Nebraska's, your South Dakota's, where we don't import a lot of pigs. We would do some exporting, but not importing. And so our viruses would be maybe more isolated and less diverse than say the Iowa's and Minnesota's. So I do think a lot of it has to do with pig movement patterns um, and how, more, more importantly, importing, um, what you're importing into your region, whether or not you're gonna have a lot of diverse many in diverse strains or a few that kind of sit there and mutate. And then there's also locations that are a little bit more unique that are only exporting. They have unique viruses in those, those locations and there's typically less turnover in those locations than the viruses that you find as well. So the diversity within a particular region is reflective of just that region. Well, we've been getting lots of good discussion, a lot of background, a lot of science. And so I'm sure that's bringing a lot of questions. And some people already have started submitting questions, but feel free if questions are coming in to you. Uh, use the widget on your screen to submit a question. Our expert panel will get to it at the end of our uh, 
discussion here. Uh, now let's move into the managing disease. We have something on the farm. What approaches can you take? I kind of think of it as two parts for management of the disease would be one, prevention of breaks at that farm, new introductions to that farm, and then how do we manage the endemic influenza that's already there. So as far as new breaks, big risks would be introduction of new animals to the site and then the potential zoonotic aspect of our uh, team members on farms spreading influenza to our, our pigs. Um, as far as the new animal introduction, you know, we can try and do surveillance on animals prior to bringing them into a site, only bring in flu negative animals. We don't all have that luxury. Um, another way we would try and mitigate would be to only use one source of animals entering that farm if it's a repro farm limit guilt sources into that site. Um, another would be limit timing of introductions, so frequency of introductions. Instead of guilt introductions every week, you know, maybe once a month or twice a year uh, can help prevent new, new strains coming in. I think the people aspect of uh, influenza introduction can be a little bit more difficult. Um, we can implement biosecurity practices and we can ask people to get flu shots and not come to work if they have influenza. But I think it gets a little bit, um, a little bit dicey. You know, we need, we need team members there to take care of the pigs. And so we can't just not have anybody coming to work if everybody's sick with influenza. So I think there's a little bit of give and take. There's always the risk and there's always gonna be new introductions, but we can limit, we can limit it a little bit, at least through those strategies. Um, and then I think, you move to more of the endemic influenza, where you know you have a strain on site, and then how do we, you know, quench that quench that strain? Um, pigs and farrowing are going to be our naive population, and again, new introductions, new guilt introductions, or pig introductions if it's a nursery or finisher, are going to be the fuel to the fire for that um, influenza that's already on site. So as far as piglet manage management strategies, being able to do a batch farrowing where all pigs are weaned off site and you have a period of time, even if it's you know a couple days, a week, where you don't have young susceptible pigs on farm is great for mo moving that out of the farrowing. Not everybody has that luxury. Um, so we try and do all in all out type movements, all one farrowing room or one farrowing barn, however um, the farm is set up. Um, and then I think, too, with the gilts being the other naive population, that goes back to um, number of introductions and frequency of introductions and the source. The, on the repro farms, the other strategy that we typically use to manage disease would be utilizing a vaccine. And there are a number of different vaccine options and different vaccine strategies. I would say our management strategy in nurseries and finishers would probably be a little bit different um, just because the impact is probably a little bit less as far as grand scheme of number of pigs affected. But if you can reduce commingling, uh, reduce the potential number of strains going into a site, and then trying to all in, all out sites as best as possible, keeping age groups the same, that can prevent influenza from continuing to roll through sites and staying endemic in that nursery or finisher. Um, 
again, with biosecurity, doing, doing our best to limit um, new animal introductions and people who have influence-like illness on sites. And then if they do, we would, you know, ask just to wear P PPE. If we can wear masks, we can wear gloves. We have a hand-washing protocol in place um, to do our best to reduce that human impact. But I think often we forget about the reverse zoonosis of people transmitting to pigs. And that has played a huge role in how viruses have evolved in pigs over time. And if you go back to the history that Tavis and I talked about, all of those new introductions of these human viruses, you can see how they've impacted the diversity of flu as they become established within the pig population. But over the last many years, we've had several human influenzas that have spilled over into pigs and they become established and in some more recent cases have become the most predominant genetic strain circulating in pigs. That's occurred in 2010 with an H3 and now 2016 we see it again and it's because of the USDA surveillance that we're able to track these viruses and know that they're occurring and the, the expertise from the phylogenetic analysis standpoint that we know where those viruses originated. Are there risks and benefits to everything? Uh, what are some of those risks and benefits of the various vaccination programs? Sure, so there's a variety of killed products available. There's commercial killed products, semi-autogenous killed products, um, an RP uh, vaccine, and then a live uh, vaccine available. Um, one of the biggest drawbacks, I would say, of the autogenous vaccine. It's just the time it takes. So you have to get a virus isolate from one of your sites, grow that, make sure that it, it uh, is what you think it is, and then that is then developed into a vaccine. And that process can take 12 weeks, 16 weeks um, before you have a product you can actually go back to your farm and use. Now, after 16 weeks, you may not even be dealing with that virus that you initially isolated. So it can be frustrating. It feels like you're always behind, always chasing that next virus and never quite getting ahead. Um, the commercial vaccines are readily available and great for immediate intervention. The, the problem there would be that these influenza strains are so specific. So like they were saying, if, if it doesn't quite match up or maybe you have a di slight difference in a key site, you're not gonna have any protection. And so you have limited options with the, the commercial vaccines on what's gonna fit for your farm. Um, you then have your RP vaccines, which are faster to get than a killed, an autogenous killed vaccine. All that takes is just a sequence. You don't have to go through and do uh, virus isolation. And it can be available fairly quickly, eight to 10 weeks. Um, it can be on your farm and you don't have to go through the virus isolation steps. So your sample types to get that sequence are broader. The, you know, you don't have to have a lower CT or a stronger sample to get those sequences. So it can be faster from the, uh, you know, practitioner's perspective. I don't have to go sample as many animals. I don't have to spend as much on diagnostics. I can get this sequence pretty quickly. Um, the fourth one, the, the live vaccine is a fairly new option and probably not tried in a lot of different situations. Um, one of the things always dealing with alive would be 
if it potentially reverts to virulence or if you have you know some type of um, virulent strain that would come out of that um, and then that one in, in particular would be a, a pig vaccine so just the administration giving to each individual pig versus some of these killed products where you would administer to sows um, it's just a different strategy potentially more work to give that vaccine so vaccine is still probably one of the best methods we have to control flu because it's such a ubiquitous virus trying to rely solely on biosecurity which maybe works for some other viruses doesn't for flu so we like to complain about the viruses a lot because they don't provide the broad cross protection against the diversity the genetic and antigenic diversity out there in the field but again it's still one of our best methods of control a lot of production systems have looked at a whole herd approach in order to control flu so they're monitoring again maybe on a monthly basis to understand what's circulating within the farm um, monitoring your guilt flow is still really important and I think a lot of us like to assume new introductions are coming from gilts fairly often and that isn't necessarily always true they probably come from a particular farm that's been exposed to flu but they might not always be infected at the time they're at the farm but you would want to protect those animals before they come into your farm against the flu you're dealing with and that's another concept that I think sometimes gets lost in the mix and isn't realized quite so so easily and then remembering that those endemic flus as you move those piglets from the breeding farm wean them and move them into the nursery they're going to be your culprits for the clinical disease that we see so trying to mitigate and control just that circulation as much as possible is what becomes important so with how ubiquitous influenza is i think the importance on prevention of introduction is a lot lower than with other diseases so we may test replacement gilts prior to putting them into a farm. If they're not PERS negative, great, we're gonna shove them in there. We don't care if they have influenza or not. And so I think not having a good idea of economic impact, being able to make those decisions on new animal entries, you no, know, getting gilts in the farm is more important than, than the influenza that we have there. So I just really don't think we understand what the impact is and there hasn't been an importance um, placed on that level of monitoring and that type of monitoring. One of the challenges as well is that it doesn't take many pigs. So you've got a subclinical infection of maybe one or two pigs that are in that barn. And then that just, every single infection may cause two additional infections, sometimes maybe three or four uh, with flu. Uh, before you know it, that subclinical virus has spread through hundreds and hundreds of pigs in your barn and then because of potentially a ventilation problem, it gets a little bit hotter in the barn. Then that subclinical infection, those pigs are stressed out. Uh, and then because of that stress, then it becomes a clinical disease. Um, so it's, it's a tough one to control because it doesn't take much. I would say too, financially, it's not practical to do a separate vaccine for every farm. So having the ability to do multiple strains that fit what you're looking for and that's where the constant surveillance and having that bank of sequences from your system ready to go when you're ready to make a vaccine comes in handy instead of having I've got a strain now that I want but I'm not going to just put one strain in a vaccine so really kind of that uh, evaluating the cost of creating a vaccine and using a vaccine for one farm versus the entire system and the timing becomes a little bit more critical 
what are the goals of a control plan and how is that accomplished? I think our best goal right now is to minimize clinical signs. Ideally, I would say I'd love to be able to eliminate influenza and prevent influenza, but I just don't think we have the technology right now um, to do an elimination program. And we don't really understand necessarily all the biosecurity processes that we need to have in place to prevent new influence introductions. One of the things I like to, to focus on is a lot of this is vertical transmission and it's coming downstream. So if we can work upstream, get to our multipliers, our nucleus sites, and really get good flu control there on animals coming in, that's where I think there's more impact to controlling new introductions um, downstream and impacting a larger number of animals. How do you evaluate and measure the success of a control plan, control program? You do the monitoring downstream and, you know, prevalence of influenza downstream. You know, maybe it's not your control program, maybe it's just kind of worked its way out, but we like to think we did something uh, when those ropes start turning negative. But then, too, a lot of it is clinical signs um, and kind of just evaluating uh, how often we're treating animals too. So that's kind of your, your clinical impact when, when people stop calling, okay, we're stop, we're not dealing with as much influenza illness here. So again, I, it's very difficult to evaluate, especially with the co-infections, you know, knowing what, what's due to influenza, what's not, but um, is monitoring as best we can and listening to our, our producers is how we've managed and how we've evaluated. I think part of it also comes back to a collaborative efforts between producers, vets, diagnostic labs, and uh, national labs as well at the federal level, in that we're able to determine if we use a vaccine, is that a good vaccine? Now, how different does a, a virus need to be before you have to update that vaccine? If you do surveillance, um, can you actively, and you go and vaccinate your herd, does it seroconvert? And if it does seroconvert, does it seroconvert to all of the different components in your vaccine um, so that then it provides protection all against all of the different genetic types? And some of those questions, are, they, they're questions. We don't have a, a good answer to them, but then it's feedback from producers to the diagnostic labs to the, at the different universities. And then through the National Pork Board sponsored programs, there can be research that addresses some of those core queries. Uh, so I think it's, it's a constant dialogue. So finding out what is an issue in the field uh, once we find out what that issue is, then the research can address that and hopefully come up with a, a good solution that can be implemented out there. Most of the vaccination probably occurring would be to sows. So it would be done at the sow herd in order to booster that maternal antibody to the piglet. Um, the two most common strategies would be a whole herd booster there or a pre-ferro booster. So we've kind of tried to evaluate those different strategies and it's been you know, a little bit difficult to piece apart, but it seems like we do the whole herd booster and you know, the, the pigs will break with influenza, but it's a shorter break and it doesn't seem to kind of you know, spread out throughout the population. That pre-ferro booster we see early breaks, middle nursery, late breaks. And so just based on that clinical presentation, that's why our system has gone to a whole herd booster twice a year. But that's what works 
for us with a continuous farrowing and non-closed herds. So it might be different with different um, systems and different farm styles, but that's kind of been the, the strategy there. As far as an individual pig vaccination, um, I think the reason that's not been as popular is due to that maternal immunity. So if, you know, we've done some, some testing of titers and they can be really strong out into middle nursery, even late nursery phase. So being able to go through and vaccinate piglets or pigs, um, I think you have so much interference with the maternal antibody that it's really difficult to get good timing on a vaccine. So the idea is always to try to be ahead of the infection. So in the case of flu, we're vaccinating sows to protect the little pig. And then trying to be ahead of the infection once that maternal antibody wanes becomes really the biggest challenge. So depending on the vaccine you're using, particularly the inactivated kill products that are given through an intermuscular route are really the ones most susceptible to the maternal antibody. So it's a game that you play in which you're vaccinating after maternal antibodies have waned because they can negate the induction of an immune response that's adequate to control the flu, but you're also trying to stay ahead of what could be the endemic strain starting to surface within the population or preventing a lateral introduction. So bottom line that we've said many times, the complexity there is, is what is the, the issue. But we have more vaccine platforms available to us now, so we probably need more research to understand how we can effectively utilize those if you're still having so many clinical outbreaks of influenza within a suckling piglet or a pre-weaned piglet that you can't really even vaccinate with the live attenuated ahead of those outbreaks, that might not be the option you wanna do and you gotta back up and look at control from that a sow perspective in order to push that out or further into the nursery. So there's a lot of things to consider, but I think when it comes to some of the vaccine challenges, there's been at least some literature that's described some of the selection process fairly well for what we can do. And so if you're monitoring your particular production system, which you should be doing genetically and you have the sequence, utilizing the diagnostic labs to compare the sequences with what's commercially available can help you understand if maybe that would be a good choice. If it's much different, then you should move to the next level where you might wanna consider an autogenous or replicon particle vaccine that's more tailored to what's circulating on the farm. Or you could consider how the uh, live attenuated might fit into your production system based on where you're seeing flu outbreaks occurring most often uh, within the system. So utilizing those sequences to start to make some uh, decisions based on a systematic approach has become really important and I think can be helpful to um, the producers and veterinarians. One thing that's changed with the diversity are diagnostics from a direct detection with tests like PCR have probably managed that diversity fairly well. We can still utilize PCR to detect the virus presence. Sequencing works well. But I think we forget about how much our antibody tests have been impacted. That diversity has really changed in how we look at our serological tests and those results from that perspective, and we need to keep that in mind. And what I mean by that is that diversity has, uh, within the influenza viruses, has now not allowed us to utilize some of the routine tests we used to use in the past. One of the gold standards is hemagglutination inhibition. At one time, because so many strains were similar, we could use that test to even detect which subtype was circulating on a farm. But now, because that's so diverse and they do not cross-react 
uh, at the antibody level between strains, those tests might be negative, but the virus still be there. So we can't just trust um, any particular test in order to answer maybe a diagnostic question. Um, currently, we have a nucleoprotein antibody assay available. That one is going to be uh, directed more against antibodies to conserved regions of the genome. So across all strains, it has a better ability to detect antibodies to different strains of flu that are out there. But it can only answer whether or not those pigs have been exposed to an influenza or whether they've been vaccinated but can't differentiate. And then if you consider the replicon particle vaccines, they focus on particular gene segments of the virus and don't include a nucleoprotein. So that antibody assay wouldn't detect antibodies to those pigs because they haven't been vaccinated unless they've been exposed to it. So it gets into a long conversation on how we look at antibody tests, but I think we also tend to overlook those, let alone oversimplifying them. So they can be utilized, I think, to a veterinarian and producer's benefit, but they have to be very tailored to a particular diagnostic question and specific to what's circulating on the farm. So if you are able to isolate a virus and you have serum from pigs that have been vaccinated with that particular virus as the antigen, you could do some hemagglutination inhibition antibody tests and detect antibodies to that virus to see if your vaccine immunity was established to a high enough level, if you still have cross-reactivity and answer that question. But you can't just take any uh, serum from any pigs and any strain of virus circulating out there, like Tava said, when there's 16 genetic strains alone and expect to answer just any uh, general questions. So it has to be very directed. And I, I wish more people would look at doing some antibody tests in order to understand if their current vaccine is still cross-reacting, which means cross-protection against their current strain. And if there's a neighbor with a different strain and we have access to that isolate, you could use the HI test to look whether or not your vaccine might cross-protect against that particular strain. But those questions are very specific and directed, and therefore we can um, interpret the outcome more effectively. So if you're going to do some antibody tests, it would probably be safe to say to talk to a diagnostic lab and with the veterinarian in order to design those so that they can be interpreted more easily. But they, they can be of benefit if we uh, design those the way that they're intended. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Driven by Prevention podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes from Merck Animal Health and learn more about Merck Animal Health at drivenbyprevention.com.